Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Megan Doherty and myself are back for another season of Picard. In this series, it's Picard Season 3, which will be the final season of this great television series. In this series, we will go through each episode, detailing the synopsis, taking a look at some of our favorite scenes, and discussing general themes and looking at key Easter eggs. I know you'll enjoy because that's what heroes do, Picard Season 3. Episode 3, 17 seconds. As this episode opens, the Shrike is attacking the Titan, injuring Shaw, who transfers command to William Riker. Beverly explains that she did not tell Piker about Jack to keep their son safe from assassination attempts. The Titan attempts to escape the nebula, but is cornered by the Shrike, which is using portal technology. Picard advises Riker to lure the Shrike into a trap, but Riker wants to flee and prioritize saving the crew. Jack and Seven deduce that Vatic is tracking a gas leak on the Titan and find an ensign who is sabotaging the ship. This ensign is revealed to be a changeling, also from the Dominion, and escapes their custody. Using the freighter La Serena, Raffi and Worf capture a criminal that they believe is responsible for the attack on Metallus Prime. They discover that he is also a changeling from the Dominion, part of the group of the Dominion who's been fighting the Federation since the end of the Federation, excuse me, the Dominion War. And they realize the attack on Metallus Prime was just a distraction. Convinced by Picard's insistence that they fight back, Riker changes course and fires on the Shrike. Their weapons are redirected back at them with a portal, and the Titan sustains heavy damage. Riker blames Picard and orders him off the bridge as they drift towards a gravitational anomaly in the nebula. Megan, I'm not sure where I'd begin, but where would you begin with episode three? Oh, gosh. Do we begin with changelings are in play or what happened to Riker or perhaps even is Jack part Borg? <laughs> Where would you like to start? Well, I want to start with the Wrath of Khan. Okay. Because to Khan. me, this was basically an homage mm-hmm. to the Wrath of Khan and how they defeated Khan by going into the nebula. I could not remember if... I think going into the to a nebula or some other star, similar astronomical uh, structure was used in the original TOS. So I don't think it started with Wrath of Khan, but it is now an almost universal trope that if you're outgunned, outmaneuvered, out outpowered, get thee to a nebula. <laughs> because it, get thee to a nebula. I love that. <laughs> Because it equalizes all. So I thought that was um, uh, an overarching theme for me. But everything you named was spot on. I didn't see that about Jack yet. Um, But the introduction of the changelings, um, you know, I had written them off at the end of Voyager or whenever. Uh, We won the Dominion (laughs) War. over, but I, I, I'm super excited. Changelings are back. They're such an interesting concept and inst- interesting character. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's wonderful when you never know who you can trust. And 
I had at one point in my Star Trek life thought the Borg were the ultimate in villains. And it turns out that was wrong. There could be an eviler villain. <laughs> and we've got both. So my, my Borg theory with Jack thing is, is when he was injured and he was having that vision, he saw Seven speaking to him, find me, and then he saw himself with um, arm, like hand technology like she had. So I thought, oh, if, he, if, if maybe some, you know, nanites or, or whatever they are from the Borg when, from when Picard was Locutus have actually transferred down to him as, as a direct progeny. Um, so the, I've often thought about the way the Dominion War ended, which mm-hmm. was the Federation introduced basically a bacteriological weapon, mm-hmm. which destroyed them. And certainly not the Federation's finest hour. You're from Canada. I'm from America. We, both of our countries have done that to our native citizens. Um, in the United States, they would send blankets for people who had been infected with smallpox pox to Indians and wipe out tribes. So that's been going on since time immemorial. Here, I think the Federation was not the stronger power, and so they uh, went to a, a, a type of warfare that's not generally condoned, at least in this century. But... In this century, the Geneva Convention has been replaced with uh, something, something perhaps more permissive. The the non-prime directive. <laughs> but that, so that certainly brings up, you know, sort of all of that, and the uh, rather how that war ended. I think the story leaves open uh, a wealth of different stories, including this one. Um, but. Um, Let's talk about Riker, because I was very disconcerted by him Well, I was almost relieved episode. when they discovered changelings were in play, because I was like, oh, Riker's a changeling. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> it made me feel much better. But <laughs> I think uh, that was not the case. You know, Riker, Riker, after the time frame of TNG, became a captain of his own ship. He has commanded ships. He's commanded men in battle, men and women in battle. He's, you know, lives have been his responsibility. And I don't want to say it was Monty Python-esque, but all I heard was run away, run away. Yeah. And that just didn't seem to me to be his character. What was your take on that? It struck me as odd, too, because I think in, in the entire kind of Riker and Picard backstory that I can think of, I've never... Seen that level of disagreement, or that level of kind of almost working against each other and really kind of philosophically differing on what the best course of action was going to be. So I thought it was it was very bizarre, and it makes me wonder kind of what the timeline events has been for Riker because we know he lost his son, and I can only imagine, you know, what effect that would have on your character, on your you know risk tolerance or aversion, how you want to you know make sure you're taking care of other people in your life. You know, maybe maybe he like there was more of a, a, maybe he was less in command from the time he lost his son to when we're seeing him now. And he's got a lot of things that he's never processed, which is funny because he lived with a counselor, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) So I was um, also interested in the dynamic between 
Riker and Picard in the following manner, that obviously in TNG, Captain was Picard and Riker was number one. As uh, the timeline went forward, Riker became his own captain. Mm -hmm. uh, Picard became an admiral. So I guess Riker was still technically inferior to Picard. Now they're both retired. I'm not quite sure in, if something other than tradition would govern that relationship. But it seemed to me that almost Picard was saying, do it because I say so. Mm -hmm. A little bit. And so I wondered, how do you um, have that dynamic where you have been clearly a, in, a subordinate, uh, whether it's in the military or business or something else, mm -hmm. you achieve your goal or you achieve the top spot. And now you're at least co-equal with the person who used to be your superior or your boss. And interestingly, in the country of Israel, this actually plays out because uh, a compulsory military service mm -hmm. in Israel, every man and woman has to serve. And so oftentimes you'll have a politician who has served under someone who is under them politically. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, so the I never thought of that as a potential outcome, but yeah, that must that must make it weird sometimes. So a prime minister can have a minister who is his commanding officer in the military, but now he is the commanding officer because he's the prime minister. Huh. Uh, so that that whole dynamic, I, I'm not sure I have an answer to it, but it seemed to be really difficult for both of them to treat each other like equals, but even more so for Picard. And, you know, I guess now that I say all that, that's perhaps what disturbed me even more. Because as much as I like Riker, I love Picard. <laughs> and and uh, maybe I hold him on too high a pedestal because, after all, he's just a man and subject to a man's foilables. Uh, but I saw a level of um, just, I'm the... The captain, you do what I say. And mm -hmm. I don't think I had ever seen that from Picard before, certainly not with Riker. It was it was definitely strange. I, I still think seeing them kind of at odds was very unsettling. It was like like mummy and daddy are fighting. Uh, and it's it's that means more bad things are gonna happen. <laughs> well, you know, I would look at it as son and dad were fighting. So uh, uh because I always let my daughter have her way, so we don't have those conversations. Um, but the uh, let's go back to, I, I just was also put off by Riker's strategy of running away. It's Sometimes so you... character. Yeah. And so I certainly see the point you raise about his son, but I'm not sure I saw anything in between the death of his son, who was referenced in this, this episode, and the Riker we saw now. And I think it was, I can't remember if it was the first TNG movie. I, no, I, actually, I think it was the very last TNG episode where Riker, it was, it was sometime in the future, Captain Picard was showing some signs of senility. Uh, Q was jumping in, in time. And no one believed that Q was doing that, or at least Picard saying that. People thought Picard was just going nuts. But Riker was a captain, mm 
of cloaked enterprise <laughs> and the tech for those who know what I'm talking about, the Federation was not supposed to have cloaking technology, but I guess if you destroy the Romulans, you could take what they had. But in that uh, final episode of TNG, Riker was clearly in command and clearly in command in a way that was a take charge guy and less not attack, but let's solve the problem. And I didn't see that here. And, and mm-hmm. frankly, that, that bothered me. Yeah. Again, I thought it was, that's, again, that's, that's why I immediately thought changeling. Uh, Cause it was just so odd, but I mean, maybe more will be explained in future episodes, but uh, more will be revealed. Be revealed. So I've got kind of a high level question for you. Something I noticed in this episode was a lot of kind of language and verbiage that seems sort of new and weird for Star Trek. So you've got like people swearing, you've got people talking about cannabis and pot, you've got people talking about self-care or working on yourself. Uh, it, it threw me a little bit. What did, what did you think of these choices? <laughs> so in terms of, I think we hit on this in our last episode, which is... This is not the age of James Kirk. And space was so much bigger then, and it's much smaller now. And the Federation is really a bureaucracy. And Shaw may be the best example of that, hidebound by rules and regulations, that even Picard and Riker had a little bit, but not nearly as much as they have now, and that they're stratified and solidified so much that the... Joie de vivre, space exploration has become a job. Mm-hmm. And a job has policies and procedures, as well I know, and rules. And that um, when your passion is not the exploration of fa- space, because you think you've conquered it, you tend to turn inward mm-hmm. and do those things like self care, like work on yourself, like try to grow, because the growth you had. In TOS or in mm-hmm. TNG or even Voyager because you had to or DS9 because you truly were on a frontier, uh, those are not available to you now. But that's a really interesting observation. I just see an entire different mentality of Starfleet officer in Shaw mm-hmm. and certainly Picard and Riker, but even Seven of Nine yep. because she grew up professionally on Voyager in a very different environment where they were making it up every day <laughs> because they were in the Delta Quadrant. <laughs> yeah, so since you, you mentioned Shaw, he's really growing on me with every episode more and more. What, what did you think of him in this episode? He so, got terribly injured, right? He, this, was, this was a big Shaw's, Shaw's transferring command. He transfers command, which I thought was not only the right move to make, but a big, big concession on his part in realization that there were forces above him or even his limited mentality at work here. And he needed to get not get with the program, but get with people who could solve it, maybe or maybe not, as it turned I, I, out. I read that as very much of a uh, you absolutely made this bed and you were going to lie in it. Like I thought he was challenging my mom. Well, while he was transferring command, it's just like, oh, that's You're- how you want to play. You go ahead and play. You. You're absolutely right, and I think he said that. It's your mess now. You, you clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> you got us in here. You get us out of that. So in this episode, I thought I saw growth from him mm-hmm. personally and professionally, but that little jibe at the end, screw you, buddy, that's what I took it. It's very passive-aggressive. Um, 
we're going to see a lot more from Shaw in the next episode, but we'll leave it to that. But the other thing I saw in this episode, and I hope this brings a, whirl, a warming to your heart, was Seven of Nine. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me start with when she's confined to quarters and Picard goes to her quarters, there's a model of Voyager in there. And I thought that was a beautiful homage, mm-hmm. not just to you, although you're certainly a part of that, <laughs> but <laughs> as well you should. But also, Seven of Nine learning how to become human again mm-hmm. on Voyager. And Janeway, I don't know if you could call her a mother, a spiritual mother, a mentor, but you know, Janeway clearly was the one who brought her back to humanity, even with the implant she still has. And so just from her having that in her cabin, I thought it was a beautiful homage mm-hmm. to all things Voyager and Seven of Nine's personal journey as well. But we saw a much more dynamic Seven because, you know, once you've been fired, you really have a lot more freedom of yeah. maneuver. <laughs> what else can they do to you? So what what did you think of Seven in this episode? I thought it was great. I think uh, I, I really got a sense that she was kind of fed up to here. And it was feeling really good for her to be able to express some of that. Uh, uh, to, you know, just two people who are like oil and water, not getting along for, for various reasons. No, she, she's, she's a perpetual favorite. Of mine, so and, and I mean, I I like one of the biggest things Janeway taught her was the importance of loyalty, and she's got it with what she's been through uh, with with Picard, and I like that she's willing to extend that to Picard's new coterie, uh, whether or not she she knows them well. I have to say, I like her much better as a ranger. Um, I think but... she was happier as a ranger too. I think this whole <laughs> following orders thing is maybe not her speed. <laughs> so let me ask you this about Seven of Nine on Voyager. The first year or two, I almost felt like her mentality was closer to that of a Klingon, very logical. Mm-hmm. And someone could say something to her, and she would very curtly either say that's not logical or use other language to make clear she thought it was not logical and just almost not so keep walking. And um, so. Is that how you saw her the first couple of seasons, or did you see something different? I think it was less about kind of determining whether or not something was logical, but it was almost a total absence of, you know, the shades of gray in between things. Questions have answers. All questions have answers. And, and you know, either you know the answer or, you know, go get it. Like, why are we talking about this? Just go do the thing, which is an attitude I, I've got some sympathy for. Um, but, yeah, I always thought she was just very, very pragmatic. And of course, you know, going through a kind of withdrawal from the collective, which I don't think, you know, it doesn't bring people's best out, as, we, as we've seen with Rafi. <laughs> um, how about some Easter eggs? Didn't have too much in the way of Easter eggs, although unless you count um, Worf uh, giving his introduction, I am, you know, from this house, I am the son, and I have made some chamomile tea. <laughs> Would you like some? And I found that a very fun moment. Uh, for the record, that was House of Moog, House of Bartok, House of Rosinko. Thank Moog. you. I didn't try because I would have screwed it up, so I appreciate you filling in that gap. 
Moog was his biological father. Martok was his adopted father. And Rosenko was his earth father. Mm. And I thought that was wonderful. He even went through some more uh, where he talked about where he killed bad guys, which also is part of the, <laughs> the Klingon liturgy. Um, there were two. like that. Like just with like. <laughs> Yeah, I, I am Megan, daughter of Kirk. Here are the five coolest things I've ever done. <laughs> um, there was two references that I just, if I had read them, I would have died for them. And the first one was early on when um, they've been attacked um, and they are getting ready to go into the nebula. I think it was Riker said to Picard, they knew where to hit us. Mm-hmm. Now, that foreshadowed one of the Easter eggs we're going to talk, talk about in a minute. But that line actually came from um, Wrath of Khan. Oh. Because when Khan attacked the Enterprise, Spock says to Kirk, he knew where to hit us. Well, Khan knew where to hit him because he had been on the Enterprise. And so there was no... Spy, no uh, undercover agent, no nefarious conduct, no releasing of secrets. Khan knew, and with his superior mind, he could remember many, many years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool. But then they had a Star Wars reference. <laughs> and he said, punch it, when they were trying to escape. Now, I did. I didn't clock that. <laughs> so... That's what they say when they go to mm-hmm. light speed and hyperspace. <laughs> punch it. Uh, not make it so. Not engage. Punch <laughs> it. So that that was, for me, incredibly cool to hear that. And there was a series of things around the changeling. Uh, we really haven't talked about uh, Worf and Rafi in this, and rightly so. But they had some scenes you, we both talked about when Worf really formally introduces himself to Rafi and goes mm-hmm. through the family history, etc. But in the second scene in this episode, they find the person who actually did the bombing, Malatus Prime. And it turns out he's a changeling. And it also turns out Worf was aware of that. Mm-hmm. And Worf talks a little bit about the Dominions, mm-hmm. the Dominion and the Changelings. And he talked about the Great Link. And as you know, I'm, I was a huge DS9 fan. Same. And so for Odo, the Great Link was almost something to be revered because it was a way to be in connection and communication with all of the other Changeling beings. Um so he talked about that. But then Worf says, an honorable man told me that. man of honor. He was talking about Odo. <laughs> and it was Odo. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to get to see Odo. I can't I wait. we do. Are we going to get to, do you think? Oh, my gosh. I think we're going to have to since they foreshadowed it. But oh, I, hope I thought so. that, that was. That would be enough to get my spouse to watch the season a second time with me. If there gets to be, if there's, be... if there's going to be an Odo cameo. Incredibly cool. So, but basically this whole episode was one big Easter egg. 
<laughs> was just this fabulous. is one of the best seasons of Star Trek I think that has come out in quite some time. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. Yes. Um, so that sort of wraps it up for me. Anything else you wanted to add on episode three? Uh, no, I think that's about what I've got here. A little, maybe just a, a quick note on the the Beverly and Picard backstory. Um, it, it seemed a little shoehorned in. I think not informing someone you are carrying a child by them is pretty poor form. But, you know, interesting reasoning, and it was kind of good to get the background details in any case. So we'll, we'll see how that relationship develops. Well, on that note, I'm Tom Fox. And I'm Megan Doherty. Thanks, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning because that's what heroes do. I hope you'll join Megan and I again next week when we take up episode three. Also, if you could subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to it, we would greatly appreciate it. Because That's What Heroes Do is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.